This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement, which is entirely responsible for its content. Welcome to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Off the Shelf gives a voice to commercial service and product companies selling in the federal market. Roger speaks to members and government officials about procurement policy, trends, innovations, and debate. Now your host, Roger Waldron. Today, my guests on Off the Shelf are Stephanie Halcro. She's the president of the Halco Group and senior fellow at George Mason University and Moshe Schwartz president of Etherton and Associates. They are the co-authors of The Power of Many, leveraging consortia to promote innovation, expand the defense industrial base, and accelerate acquisition. Um, And this is all about OTAs and uh, DOD's use of consortia. And uh, Moshe, let's just start. First of all, guys, thank you for doing the show. Welcome. Thank you for having us. so much. It's a great study. I recommend it to... uh, the folks who want to understand what's going on in this sort of unique authority um, and the role that consortia play in small businesses um, and non-traditionals in a certain sense, right? But Moshe, let's start. Can you just sort of give the folks listening you know, an overview of other transactions authority, OTAs, as it's commonly referred to, and then we can dive into your report and consortia and that sort of thing? Absolutely. And one of the keys here is that OTAs and consortia are not the same, right? And you can have one without the other. You can have consortia that use a vehicle that's not an OTA, and you can have OTAs that do not have a consortia. But OTAs, as as many people know, it dates back quite a lot. It dates back, actually, its seeds are in 1957. In fact, on October 4th, 1957 when Russia launched Sputnik, which was the first satellite, man-made satellite into space and launched what was the space race. And in response to that, Congress passed an act that established NASA in 1958. And in that act, they created other transaction authority for the purpose of harnessing scientific and industrial capabilities of the US to win the space race. And it was successful. Over the years since then, more and more agencies were given OTA authority, including the Department of Defense. It started small, but it expanded. So that is the basic example of how OTA started. And the power of OTAs is that they are, by and large, exempt procurement statutes and regulations that would normally apply. So, for example, IP requirements cost and pricing data, some levels of competition, you're exempt from that. It doesn't mean you can't do it. It doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. What it means at the end of the day is tailor what you are doing to get the best product for the agency. Right. And and all my lawyer friends like to make sure you say, you know, even though they're all outside the FAR and all those points from great, they're still contracts, right? So um... they are still contracts. And other laws do apply, like anti-corruption laws. Right. You know, insufficiency yeah. act requirements of funding do apply. So it's not like they are free from all law. Right. So uh, Stephanie Moshe made the point, um, you know, that OTAs um, can have can utilize consortia or not. Right. Um, 
but we're focusing on consortia today and in you know your your article your in Moshe's article so can you can you provide a a, a history of consortia where did this idea and how, how did it all how did it all come about absolutely as Moshe said um consortias can exist without ot's and vice versa um in this report is about the consortia model um, we do talk about OTs, but the majority of the report is about the consortium model, and that's what makes it unique because there's a number of reports on OTs and recommendations with regards to OTs. Um, but when we looked out there at the literature, there was nothing on the consortium model and the value proposition that the consortium model brings. So the history of consortia um, go back to the um, late 1990s when um, there were some scientists at Thiokol, um that were trying to do research and prototypes with with the government. And, and they thought, you know, we're, we're coming up with an idea and we flip it over the fence and then the government flips it back over. And it wouldn't it be great if we could get into a room, we could just collaborate. About the same time, there were um, individuals at OSD level, uh, Office of Secretary of Defense level, they were com- concerned about the munitions industrial base. And so these individuals all got together and they con- created the first, what we would say, DOD consortia. Now, since then, over 42 consortia have been organized around the consortia model. That was the time of um, we printed our report. Um, as we were finalizing our report, I saw a couple other consortia were being developed. But we uh, staffed the line at 42, and we're really fortunate that 12 of the consortia provided data for this report. Um, So all of the um, conclusions and the recommendations in the report are based on that data that we collected um, from those 12 consortia that agreed to participate. Where can people find the report? Yeah, the report is um, at the Center of Government Contracting uh, website at George Mason University, and we'll have a link um, that we can uh, publish as well. They could probably just um, also Google the power of many. Uh, I know when I Google that, um, I find a number of um, links to the reports. Great. Thanks. So I think next we want to talk about what is the consortium model. Can you explain what exactly that structure is and sort of how it works? Yeah, absolutely. The consortium model um, consists of three entities. The first is the government sponsor. There has to be a government requirement um, to want to organize industry and academia together with the government to collaborate. So the government sponsor is the first entity in the consortium model. And then there's the consortium itself. The consortium is what consists of industry, academia, Um, The consortium manages the members. And over time, many individuals operating in this model have decided to employ what's called a consortium management firm to help the government and help the consortium uh, with a number of activities, uh, mainly administrative activities, whether it be the contracting um, or the training of the consortium members. Um, so three entities in the consortium model, the consortia sponsor, the consortium itself, and the consortium management firm. And how many firms are typically in one of these 
so we were able to find, uh, identify 42 consortium um, that are doing business with the government. Um, there is a list in the report, in the appendix, that lists all those 42. Not all of them are doing business with the Department of Defense. Some of them are in other agencies. But then you asked uh, consortium management firms um, have found um, the ability to leverage what they do and um, help a number of consortia. So also in the report, we talk about the consortia management firm and uh, individual management consortia management firms may work with a number of consortia to help them um, with their administrative um, uh, and training of members. So when there's a government sponsor and they go to contract, are they contracting with the entire consortia or is it depending on the project firms within the group or how does that work? Yeah, so how the consortium model process works is the government has a requirement and they want to use the consortium to um, get potential uh, solutions to that problem that they're trying to solve. So they'll go to the consortium and the consortium will send out the requirement to all of their members asking for white papers. And so um, this often happens or starts at a virtual or in, during COVID or before that in an in-person event. And so you start to get the individual industry and academia members start to talk with each other about how they might together solve the problem. And so then these white papers come back to the consortium and um, the consortium help organize them and, and present them to the government sponsor. But always the government sponsor um, is selecting the um, awardee and the, the contracting actions may happen through the consortium management firm, but the government sponsor is always the one that's selecting the awardee. Okay. Um, and you know what, Stephanie, we're up on the break already. So when we, when we come back, we'll talk some more about the process, the model, and also trends in consortia that we're seeing, uh, that you guys have seen over the recent years. Uh, you know, just a really fascinating, interesting area, sort of outside the FAR to try to leverage, you know, innovation, technical capability, um, you know, and science, frankly, right? So my guests today are Moshe Schwartz. He's the president of Etherton & Associates, and Stephanie Halcrow. She is the president of the Halcrow Group and a senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. I'm Roger Waldron, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Waldron. My guests today are Stephanie Halcrow. She is the president of the Halcrow Group and a senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. And Moshe Schwartz, who is the president of Etherton & Associates today. We're talking about consortia. And uh, Stephanie and Moshe recently co-offered The Power of Many, Leveraging Consortia to Promote Innovation, Expand the Defense Industrial Base, and Accelerate acquisition. You can find this report by Googling the power of many or going to the George Mason University's government contracting website. Um, and it'll be right there. You can find the link. So, um, and I recommend it to any, to anybody who's interested in government contracting, you know, the, you know, the show is primarily the listeners are all government contract geeks proudly. So, uh, so it would be good reading for them. It's and very educational and on uh, something that's extremely important. So uh, Moshe, and one reason why it's extremely important is just 
you know, when you talk to me, you know, you guys explain to me the depth and breadth of consortia and just how many entities are involved. Moshe, can you address that? Yeah, absolutely. So, for example, as Stephanie mentioned, we looked at 12 consortia. And if you look across those 12, they averaged 500 different members per consortia. Some had more, some had less. And in fact, some of the newer ones had less because we see generally consistent growth of membership over time. There are consortia that reach 900,000 members, right? So these are not exclusive clubs uh, by any means. And it includes large companies, small companies, and mid-sized companies, traditional defense contractors and non-traditional defense contractors, and companies that have never worked with government before, but this is their first exposure to them, and we'll get into that in, in a moment. Academic institutions, it includes all of those, and it really is designed to create that ecosystem and milieu of various different players with different backgrounds and skills and experience and strengths together. So if I do my math and I'm, you know, a lawyer by training, so I don't do math well, but I guess that means for those 12, it's about at least 6,000, you know, different firms involved, like 500 times 12. So, yeah, 5,000. That, that's correct. Um, yeah. It's 5,600 actually for the ones okay. that we looked at. But I, I, just to clarify, you can have companies and do have companies in more than one consortium. So I wouldn't say it's 5,600 unique companies. But it is not the same 500 companies in every single consortia because the consortia revolve around specific technology areas. So a technology area in energy, if you're an energy company, there might be one or two other consortia, but you're not going to be in a consortia that may have to do with land vehicles, for example. Doesn't the Department of Energy, they have OT authority, if I remember correctly as well. So it's like the big ones are like NASA, DOE, and DOD, right, if I recall correctly. Yeah, is that right? and there are others. There are 12 agencies that actually have it in some way, shape, or form. It's different for almost every agency, and sometimes the components within agencies have unique ones. But, yeah. Yeah. So, Moshe, I'll ask you, how has it grown uh, over the uh, over the years since since about 2000, I think, we've seen significant growth? Um, you know, the numbers, you current numbers, you know, reflect where we are now, but where did we come from? So I I will talk about that in a moment, but I think when looking at trends of data, it's useful to put them within a bigger context of what else is going on, right? Because if something is increasing, but everything else is increasing, well, then you're not really getting a picture of the effect of that particular thing. So something that we have talked about before is the defense industrial base and its health. And it's a big topic now, and maybe that will set the context. So quoting GAO, I'm an agency near and dear to my heart, having worked there. From 2011 to 2020, the number of small businesses receiving DOD contract awards decreased by 43%. As it turns out, at the same time, that contract obligations increased by 15%. So substantially fewer companies, even when there's more money at stake. Interestingly, they also found in the report that the number of larger businesses receiving contract awards fell by 7.3% annually. That's faster than it fell on small businesses. So what we see is a substantial contraction of the number of companies working with the Department of Defense. That is in sharp contrast to the U.S. economy, right? Because U.S. GDP grew from 2011 to 2020, the same time period, 
by 34%. And the number of businesses in the U.S. economy grew by 7% from 2010 to 2019. So our report has lots of data, if you haven't figured that out yet. Right. Uh, but so what's going on with the defense industrial base is fewer companies want to participate in it, even as more companies are coming into existence and the economy is growing, right? So why is that? That's a great question, maybe a question for another report, but there is an area where the number of companies participating in the defense industrial base is increasing, and that is consortia, because from 2010 to 2020, almost the same period of the data we talked about, the total membership of the 12 consortia we surveyed increased from 365 to over 5,600. So greater defense industrial base shrinking, number of companies and consortia working with governments increasing, right? So why, why do you think that is? Well, actually, I wanted to add one more point to it because- Okay, as, then I, I'll ask why. And I'll give you the hypothesis. It's, and who is joining these consortia, right? Over 4,500 companies who are non-traditional contractors are members of these 12 consortia, right? And they make up, between 69 and 89% of the total membership. So the total membership is primarily non-traditionals. And small businesses account for more than half of the membership. Clearly, some small businesses are also non-traditionals. That's the only way the math works. But so the other point I wanted to mention is a lot of non-traditionals are joining this and attracting companies that otherwise would not work with the Department of Defense either because they can't or out of a conscious decision. So that leads to the great question, why? I wish I had the perfect answer for that. I wish. I can I answer that. Yeah, let's hear from Stephanie. Come on. Well, I think it's it's the unique aspect of the consortium model that allows for collaboration between the companies and the government. And so I think non-traditional defense contractors are attracted to that because primes are all modeled after the, the defense contracting system, right? They, they understand it. They model themselves after it, but non-traditional defense contractors don't. And so they really appreciate the collaboration that the consortium model brings um, to the experience. Uh, and, and, and the access um, that it does. And we have a case study, in fact, that, that talks about that collaboration and talks about the ability of a non-traditional defense contractor to do business with the government. And, and they say, and we, we have it in the report, they would not have been able to do that without the collaboration of the consortia. One company that said very clearly, but for the consortia, they would not have worked with DOD. And we've so, heard that from other places as well. So, I, I mean, my follow-up question to that is, um, how much do you think, like, because you mentioned Moshe when you described OTAs and the intellectual property, you know, allocation of rights and how that's negotiated or addressed in these OTAs is that it's more, it's not FAR-based, right, if I understood correctly, but so there's more flexibility to, that can create incentives for people to want to do business with the government, right? Absolutely. So um, DIU has also, Defense Innovation Unit, 
has also brought companies into the defense ecosystem that weren't there before. And they also not exclusively, but substantially use other transaction authority, right? So the OTA, we believe, and I believe is definitely a part of it, the flexibility that you're talking about to be creative and not have those handcuffs of the regular FAR, right? right. So the OTA is a benefit. The consortia is also a benefit because they have this relationship and they have expertise around technology areas. So when industry, when DOD needs something, there is that willing and ready and primed market to respond for a requirement that was unanticipated. And I think the best example of that is probably COVID and Operation Warp Speed. Moshe, right there. We'll stop right there. And when we come back, you can provide the examples on COVID. And we can continue to talk about because that will lead right into want to discuss how, you know, consortia can be leveraged to expand the industrial base. And I think that COVID probably story probably leads right into it. And uh, so we'll go there when we come back from the break. My guests today are Stephanie Halcrow. She's the president of the Halcrow Group and senior fellow at George Mason University's Center for Government Contracting and Moshe Schwartz, president of F13 and Associates. I'm Roger Walder, and you're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. My guests today are Moshe Schwartz, who's president of Etherton Associates, and Stephanie Halcrow. She is the president of the Halcrow Group and senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. We are talking about some of the findings, observations, and interesting factoids coming out of uh, Stephanie and Moshe's uh, recent article, or study, excuse me. I don't want to underplay. It's a study. The power of many leveraging consortia to promote innovation, expand the defense industrial base, and accelerate acquisition, which you can find on the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting website. Um, And Moshe, when we had to take the break, um, you were about to talk about, uh, you know, experiences during COVID with the use of consortia and OTA. So take it away. Yeah. So, and I will have the opportunity to slightly reference Star Trek, which is an opportunity I would hate to pass up. As a fellow Trekkie, absolutely go for it. Warp speed, right? Right, right. (laughs) Operation Warp Speed. And, you know, DOD was put in charge of that operation. In fact, General Gus Perna was uh, the chief operating officer of Operation Warp Speed. And they used a consortium. And what is interesting is the comment that General Pernup made. He said warp speed would not have gone at warp speed if it was not for the consortium. So one is that they used OTAs, no doubt about that. I don't think anybody would question that and all the flexibility that was there. I think the second thing is when DOD reached out to the consortia, the consortia already had hundreds of companies that they had been working with around this area of vaccines and delivery systems. So they had the whole ecosystem to reach out to and say, hey, we have this emerging problem. How do we solve it? And they already knew how to work together and contracting mechanisms in place and who the players are. And that can really speed things up tremendously. So that's one huge benefit of consortia is the pre-existing relationships that exists and rallying around the technology. Another case study and story that we had, which was a great one, 
is D, there was an example that DOD put out an RFI, they needed to get something, and they got zero responses. They went to the consortia after that, and the consortia put together a collaboration event with DOD, and DOD and industry got together, and the requirements were refined to one that can be responded to reasonably by industry. DOD, based on that collaboration event, reissued a request, and then they got responses that were actionable. And that's another example is consortia were facilitating communication early on to help inform DOD's crafting of requirements to be able to be more effectively responded to to industry. And that's two different examples of how consortia can help doesn't mean other people can't help. It doesn't mean it happens that well every time, but that was powerful in both cases. Those are yeah, powerful stories. And as we, as, you, as we were thinking about that, Stephanie, I wanted to ask you, like, so those are great positive examples of the use of consortia, you know, in a time of need, you know, right? COVID, warp speed. Um, how can, you know, for, as a strategic matter, how can a consortia be used to, reverse the trend of uh, companies leaving the defense industrial base? So we found that in the 12 consortia that provided data for our study, that 78% of these um, member industry companies, businesses, academia, were non-traditional defense contractors. And so if there is a desire in a certain technology area um, to expand the industrial base um, that participates with the Department of Defense, establishing a consortia in that area um, generates a pull, generates a network of more non-traditional defense contractors. It expands the industrial base in that area. And so if the Department of Defense had a strategic plan of these certain areas that they want to expand the industrial base, and identified that there are actually consortia that already exist or they need to develop consortia, that is one tool that they could use to improve their ability to do business with other um, companies in, in academia. So, Moshe, you have any other thoughts on that or how do you have strategies for it? Yes, use them, right? Consortias are a tool. Don't be afraid to use it. Now, I do want to clarify that, and we made this very clear in our report, we are not suggesting that consortia are a silver bullet. Nothing is a silver bullet. We are not suggesting that they are the right thing to do every time. I don't think I would use an OTA to buy the next aircraft carrier as an extreme example, right? So you want to use it at the right time. It is a tool. It is no more than that. It is a tool. But for the right circumstances, like COVID, like the other examples that we talked about, like something that really you need to prototype, it is an excellent tool. So don't be afraid of it. Right. And what, what are you seeing beyond, like in real life, uh, you the collaboration between government, industry, academia? You know, are there examples of events or things that you've like identified as part of your research that are sort of best practices for for government and for people thinking about why would I want to be part of a consortia? 
Well, as I mentioned before, not only are 78% of the members of consortia um, non-traditional defense contractors, but also uh, 67% of the awards uh, in consortia are to those non-traditional defense contractors. And so if we are looking to expand the industrial base um, and leverage collaboration, you know, those things go hand in hand in the consortium model. And like, like Moshe said, it's not the silver bullet. Um, but one of the examples, and Moshe mentioned it briefly, was that uh, the, the Industrial Based Policy Office and DOD uh, put out a request um, for um, information on a certain um, munitions propellant that they need, and they, they received zero responses. So afterwards, it was only through the collaboration um, that a consortia organized between government and between industry that they were able to fine tune um, and, and influence what those requi like successful requirements would be. The government then reissued the solicitation and then received actionable um, responses. Moshe? So I think one of the most compelling reasons to use consortia is something that just happened in the last three weeks. It was after our report. I was talking to a friend of mine who started a new job at this technology company um, with, uh, with, which had an interesting technology, I thought. And I said, hey, have you tried to sell this to DOD or approach them? They might have interest in this. And this is somebody who has worked in government. This is someone who has an inherent patriotic streak in them. And his response was, no. I said, why not? He said, I can't afford to dedicate the resources, the time it takes to get a contract, the effort it takes to get something on it with the instability and security. I'm just not interested. I want to reallocate resources for the highest level of success. Okay, I said, do you know what consortia are? He said, no, I talked to him for about five minutes. And then I explained to him that you'll get the white papers and you'll see other people in the industry and maybe you'll subcontract it and they will help you with the process so you can understand it and not have to dedicate time and effort to get up to speed. And he said, oh, put me in touch with them. Well, I didn't, and a week went by. And he called me and said, you have to put me in touch with them. I want to hear, maybe I'll join. And so I did. And within 30 seconds of my email to connect them, he sent an email saying, hey, I want to hear more about the consortium. Maybe we'll join, right? And so will they get a contract with DOD? I don't know. But they're in the game now. And to the extent right. that consortium can bring more people into the game and consider contracting in a way that they never would have considered before, we are already benefiting from that. Right. And you know what? We're up on the break, Stephanie Moshe. So when we come back, um, you know, you talked about that's a new entrance. So it's interesting, too. I want to hear your guys' observations on how this can help, you know, the traditional industrial base co companies as well. And then we can flip from there to like some recommendations for DOD to further leverage um, the power of consortia to sort of finish up the show. Okay, so we'll be right back. My guests today are Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton Associates. Stephanie Halcrow, she's the president of the Halcrow Group and a senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. I'm Roger Waldron. You're listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. 
Welcome back to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. I'm Roger Walter, and my guests today are Stephanie Halcrow. She's a president of the Halcrow Group, senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting, and Moshe Schwartz. He is the president of Etherton and Associates. And we're talking about uh, consortia and OTAs and their uh, recent study, The Power of Many, leveraging consortia to promote innovation, expand the industrial defense industrial base, and accelerate acquisition, which is can be found on the George Mason University's government contracting uh, website and links to it. So um, when we took the break, I mean, the next topic was sort of, we talked a lot and Moshe had a great example of a new potential new entrant, but how does this, Stephanie, benefit um, traditional government contractors, those guys everybody thinks of when they think of defense industrial base? We interviewed a number of traditional defense contractors, primes, if you might also term them, and, and asked them why they participated in consortia. And they said, for a lot of reasons, they love the collaboration too, but also they love the collaboration with government. They love the collaboration with other industry partners. In fact, they said that they expand their supply chain uh, industrial base themselves by finding other consortia members that are that are in that same technology area um so that that was really interesting to understand why they also um uh love the consortium models just like the non-traditionals um but going forward if if we're going to continue to increase the traditional participation increase the non-traditional participation um i think there's got to be um a more transparency and, and visibility to the data um, we were lucky enough to have 12 consortia of the 42 consortia out there participate by providing us data. Um, the government has access to this data. Um, Congress has told them to collect it and make it public. And, and I think the more data that is collected, the value proposition that the consortium model brings is only going to be increased. Um, additionally, we think that there needs to be um, a collection of best practices and training on when is the right time to use a consortia for what problem we mentioned that it's not the silver bullet, but there are many times where the consortia model is such a value and making sure that the DOD acquisition workforce is trained on when those, uh, those times are and what the best practices of setting up a consortia are would be, would be super important. And if there are challenges, and you know, I know we talk a little bit about those. But one question: when you talk about training the workforce, it's interesting. But having this dialogue uh, across the board, you know, do, do are you training folks to identify potential use of consortia, and does that translate into there's, you know, it goes to a group of contracting folks who are sort of specialized you know, in their experience in doing consortia. So you have a sort of, you know, a tiger team kind of thing. Is that the way DOD is kind of structuring or how are they doing it? So I think they're still feeling their way forward as it were, right? Um, DAU has training on OTAs, but they have not had um, a strategic approach to train on consortia specifically. They're, I think they're working on it now, um, or at least have expressed interest but they haven't taken the consortia part of it as a specific learning effort. 
Um, there have there are some shops, you know, contracting shops that do it, and the people that rotate through defense innovation unit and come back, go back to their services, definitely learn about it, but they don't have a comprehensive approach yet. It is somewhat new still. And so that will still take time, but DOD does seem to be increasingly focused on trying to get more training and get it done right. One of the things that I think you've noted too is just the congressional interest in this, whether it's transparency or effective use of it and just the challenges and opportunities around that. Can you talk a little bit about that, yeah. Moshe? Yeah. So over the years of other transaction authority, and OTs are not different than other areas of law, frankly, as Congress has expanded other transaction authorities to various agencies into DOD, they've asked for reports and data, which makes sense because as you're giving a new authority, you want to see if it's working or not, right? So some people have said, well, Congress is asking for all this data. They clearly are putting a chilling effect on other transactions. I don't agree. I think that is smart that when you are giving DOD more authority, you want to see the results. So, you know, is it working? Isn't it working? Do you need to course correct? Unfortunately, DOD hasn't been able to effectively provide good transparency and visibility, which has led to more requests for data from Congress, right? Funny how that works, huh? <laughs> I know you've never heard that story before, Roger. So right, right. But um, so they're working on it. It's a good thing, right? As, as Stephanie said, all the consortia that we were talked to when it's almost a third of them provided us with a lot of data, you know, and, and we're happy to share. So I don't think it is a bad thing and will be good long term, particularly because the more visibility you have, the more people may refrain from putting more regulation on consortia and OTs. And that is the biggest fear. One right. of the fears that we had was over time, as people decide, oh, let's add this policy, let's add this regulation, you're going to undercut the value of the flexibility of OTs and consortia. And we definitely do not want that to happen. Stephanie? Yeah, I was just going to add another recommendation um, that we have in the report that will be informed by the collection of data um, is the transition to prototype. Um, so currently consortia and OTs are mainly focused, um, excuse me, transition to production, uh, are currently focused around uh, prototypes, but um, the authority allows them to transition to production. And so right now we had a hard time linking those um, production efforts from the prototype efforts because the consortia handles the prototype efforts, but the production efforts is usually done outside of the consortia. And so with the data, which, oh, by the way, what Congress has mandated is connecting those two, um, will continue to show that there's a value to consortia. And then back to what Moshe said, will we'll satisfy Congress need, Congress's need for data and will help them resist any more regulatory burdens? Go ahead, Mosh. Roger, we ended the report with a challenge to the three big players of uh, in this whole model, right? So it's DOD, Congress, and the consortia themselves. And so we, we kind of raised a challenge. One is for DOD, um, gather the right data to inform policy, not data for data's sake, but gather the right data to inform policy and implement training on consortia at DAU. For Congress, 
the, the uh, issue we raised in the challenge was ensure that DOD uses OTs effectively, but you know, do your oversight responsibilities, but don't add too many regulations that will undermine their value. And consortia, one of their strengths is fostering increased collaboration. How can we even increase collaboration more specifically among the members of the consortia to work together and combine strengths to provide more comprehensive solutions to the government? Right. And, you know, we're at the end of the show, but I'll just say if uh, those are great challenges for, and those are the key people you've identified. And if they meet those challenges, I think the future is bright for for consortia and for OTAs. So I want to thank my guest today, Moshe Schwartz. He's president of Etherton Associates and Stephanie Halcrow. He's the president of the Halcrow Group and a senior fellow at George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. I'm Roger Waldron, and you've been listening to Off the Shelf on Federal News Network. You've been listening to Off the Shelf with Roger Waldron of the Coalition for Government Procurement on Federal News Network. Tune in Tuesday mornings at 11 or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.